Welcome to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. The Atlantic Council serves the global community by bringing together world leaders, foreign policy experts, and great thinkers to shape today's policy choices and navigate the global challenges of the 21st century. In the following program, the Adrian Arsht Latin America Center holds a discussion on the realities of women in business and politics throughout Latin America and discusses concrete tools to guide the empowering of female leadership. The event launched the report Women's Leadership in Latin America, the Key to Growth and Sustainable Development, and took place on Wednesday, May 31st, 2017. Good morning, or buenos dias. That's it for my Spanish. I'm Adrian Arsht, the founder of the um, Adrian Arsht Latin America Center and executive vice chair of the Atlantic Council. This forum was put together um, with some really experts, um, and I was given some talking points. And I looked at them, and then I was in the other room listening to the women who were going to speak and participate in the forum, and I thought, you don't need to hear me. Scrap my remarks. Let's move on, keep to the agenda so we can hear a lot more from them. I can tell you about the importance of women leaders. I can tell you how we started this. <laughs> so I am to introduce um, the video. We have a video from um, the Chilean president, um, Madame uh, Bachelet. And she represents um, the, the power and the strength of a leader, of a female leader, and she has done this video uh, for us. It is in Spanish, so for those uh, of you who wish simultaneous translation, uh, you can do that. But we will listen to her words, and then Capricia Marshall, Ambassador Marshall, who has created this concept of the women's leadership in Latin America, will take over from there. So let's look at the video and get on with things. To, to stand aside. Um, so good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I'm Capricia Benedict Marshall, as uh, uh, Ms. Arsh stated, and I am the Arsht Ambassador in Residence here at the Atlantic Council. Um, we are deeply grateful to our founder, Adrienne Arsht, for her vision and providing us with this extraordinary platform to explore this region, this beautiful region of Latin America in ways that has never been done before. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to Fred Kemp uh, for his leadership here at the council and to Jason Marzuk, who brilliantly leads our team at the Arsh Center and to all of our team members who are here today um, who are fantastic at helping creating this wonderful programming and especially to Andrea Saldarriaga Humanist, who led the team on today's initiative to great, great, great success. Um, we do regret that Senator Nympha Salinas of Mexico was unable to join us uh, here at the last minute, but we are ever so grateful to her, to my dear friend Natalie Reyes, uh, the VP of Public Affairs at Grupo Salinas, and to Grupo Salinas for realizing the importance of this initiative and supporting it so very, very generously. We, we all have our story. 
I am first-generation Mexican-American, uh, the product of strong, brilliant, and I would like to say quite attractive uh, Mexican women, my mother and mi abuelita. They instilled in me core principles to see beyond current societal expectations. There were no laws in place, no quotas, um, but they at, they enforced in me to look and strive beyond the boundaries and to those glass impediments. Each of our speakers today, you'll hear each of our speakers that you'll hear from today has a unique story that we could all learn a great deal from about women in this amazing region. With the report we launched today, the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsh Latin America Center seeks to leverage the region's compelling case studies into a larger dialogue on how governments, corporations, and civil society can maximize recent progress to bring more women into positions of power. It focuses on women's participation in public office, women in the C-suite, and the case studies of Mexico, Chile, and Bolivia. The women we have here today are true examples of leadership in their respective fields, women who have broken down barriers and crashed through ceilings, beginning with Adrienne Arsh, who is a business leader and philanthropist. Her business acumen is extensive, taking Total Bank from four branches to 14 and growing the assets to over $1.4 million. Billion dollars, excuse me, billion dollars. That was like, um, you know moment. Um, she graduated from law school as only one in 11 women and now is on the boards of the most prestigious institutions in our country. As the founder of two centers at the Atlantic Council, the Adrian Arsh Latin America Center and the Adrian Arsh Resilience Center, she has created extraordinary platforms for captivating discussions that advance and test current policy. Taking on challenges with these, she is truly our Lindsay Vaughn. For our fireside chat, we have an extraordinary keynote speaker, Michelle Flournoy. Michelle is the co-founder and chief executive officer of the Center for a New, America Secur a New American Security, a nonpartisan think tank based in Washington, D.C. She served as the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy from February 2009 to February 2012. At the time of her appointment, she was the highest ranking woman at the Pentagon. Probably still is, yes. <laughs> and the first woman to serve in her position. Additionally, she was the principal advisor to the Secretary of Defense in the formulation of national security and defense policy, oversight of military plans and operations, and in National Security Council deliberations. She led the development of DOD's 2012 strategic guidance and represented the department in dozens of foreign engagements in the media and before Congress. She's just simply amazing. We also welcome Maria Cardona, my dear friend, who will first moderate a conversation with Michelle and later with our esteemed panelists. Maria is one of the rare female political and business contributors on television today. She boldly takes stands on CNN and CNN in Espanol, often to give voice to women's issues. She is a principal at the Dewey Square Group, leading, in the, leading the multicultural and public affairs practices. Maria joined DSG in 2005 and founded DSG's Latino strategies practice, Latinovations. Following this conversation, we have a gold star panel who will address the findings of the report as they relate to their specific areas of interest. We are so very pleased to have Congresswoman Ama 
Arsaluz Alonso, uh, one of the shining stars of the Green Party of Mexico and the Secretary of the Commissions on Mining, the Environment, and Natural Resources, and Mexico's Cultural Heritage. As a member of several other commissions on the economy and budget and public accounts, she has been firmly fighting for these issues and women's rights and will address how female participation in government can advance in the region. Angelica Fuentes is an economic force. She is another one of the most influential women in, Me in Mexico. As a businesswoman and entrepreneur, she founded a complete gender equality fund, imperative fund, and the Angelica, Angelica Fuentes Foundation. She knows intimately the realities of female empowerment in the private sector and will reflect on that with us today. I want to quote a tweet of hers from a few hours ago. People will treat you the way excuse me, people will treat you the way you allow them to. State your limits, demand respect, and always say what you want. Great advice. <laughs> Jennifer Klein, another dear friend, is currently an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law Center and former deputy and former senior advisor at the Office of Global Women's Issues for the Office of the Secretary of State. She has invested a lifetime of hard work and research into the advancement of women globally for several decades, becoming one of the foremost experts on women's issues. With her extensive background, she will provi provide conclusive research of the advantages of women's participation in the highest levels of our society. And finally, the talented author of our report, Laura Albernos Polman. She is the former Minister of Women's Affairs of Chile and current director of Codelco, the world's largest copper company. We are ever so grateful for her patience and understanding throughout the drafting of this unique examination of women's leadership in Latin America. She will infuse her findings from the report throughout the panel discussion. Thank you all for being here today and for traveling such long distances to share your incredible experiences with us. As uh, Adrian has stated, we will have simultaneous translation for today's discussion. Now, let's, do we have, is it working or should I, we begin the panel? Okay, now let's welcome to the stage Maria and Michelle. Good morning, buenos dias. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. This is an exciting uh, event, an incredible opportunity for me. Thank you, Capricia. Thank you, uh, the Latin American Council. Uh, thank you, Adrian. Thank you to all the amazing panelists. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you, everyone who is here today to really listen to what I hope will be a very robust discussion and hopefully participate in it as well. I think that as excited as I am to be participating in this kind of event, I think we will all be happy and glad that we have gotten there when we don't need to have these kinds of events <laughs> to discuss these issues. I think that time, unfortunately, is quite a bit ways off. So until then, let's take advantage of some amazing women who have not only really made an impact on this issue in terms of advancing women's, um, the place in society, the place in business, the place in government, but have experienced it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly, <laughs> as they have come up in, in the ranks to really reach the top echelons of their careers. And so with that, Michelle, I just kind of want to turn to you. And so you can tell us a little bit about your experiences coming up um, in, in the Pentagon, in the, in the sort of defense world, in the military world, which, as we all know, is still incredibly male-dominated. I'm sure mm -hmm. it was not easy. 
So would love to hear firsthand from you, uh, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced as you were coming up in this, in this arena? Right. Well, first of all, let me say thank you to the Atlantic Council um, for hosting this event. I think it's a really important conversation. I'm honored and very happy to be here. Um, so, you know, I think uh, when I was coming up in the uh, national security world and the defense world, um, I think the biggest challenge initially was there were really no women role models um, and, and very few opportunities to have female mentors. I was very, very fortunate to have wonderful male mentors who took an interest in my career and my professional development and really gave me a number of uh, opportunities and pushed me uh, hard. But I think in the absence of a, you know, you, you know there, I can't count the number of times, you know, I was yet again the only woman in the room. And at some point, you just have to adopt a not minding attitude that, you know, if it's going to bother someone that someone shouldn't be you, let it be someone else's, they, you know, they, somebody else can worry about it, but just you're going to get on with doing your job, providing value, being excellent, and, and making it clear that there's no question why you're there, you know, at the table. Um, but I think, um, you know, that lack of, uh, that aloneness also meant lack of community. I remember in the Pentagon, you know, the first, uh, when I, my first tour in the Clinton administration, we had a women's leaders lunch, and all eight of us had lunch <laughs> at a little <laughs> tiny table wow. in, the, in the dining room, and then, and then for weeks, they were like, what were they all meeting about and talking about, you know? <laughs> Um, now, if you invite, had a women's leaders lunch in the Pentagon, I'm happy to say, you know, there'd be, you'd, you'd overflow a room this size. So that's there's good. been some progress, although obviously more has to be made. That's, that's really good advice, the not worrying about being the only woman or one of the only women there. But I also would think that you were in situations, I, I certainly faced it, where either consciously or subconsciously, you got kind of pushback either from your ideas mm -hmm. or even you even just you being in the room yeah. from some men who might not have appreciated that you know there's this woman and perhaps he didn't believe that you knew your stuff or that you were prepared mm -hmm. or you know whatever the reason so how would you handle situations like that where there was either again conscious or subconscious pushback or disrespect or even you know outright sexism right you know, I think when it's um, sort of bias out of ignorance, um, I was once early on asked, you know, what's a nice girl like you doing in a job like this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, usually you don't think of the comeback. It's like 12 hours later when you're going to bed, you think of the comeback. But, you should have said this. But I actually <laughs> thought of the comeback. And this guy was an Army general from the South. And I said, well, what's a su nice Southern boy like you doing in a place like this, General? Okay. And that, so humor can yeah. sometimes diffuse. I mean, if it really escalates to like discrimination and, and or harassment, you have to do something about it. But a lot of times I would just, again, let it be the other person's problem. It's their ignorance or their limited point of view and just proceed to demonstrate why I am where I am. And then there's this very strange shift that happens where it's the talking dog phenomenon. You know, you're, the expectations were so low that you know you couldn't put a sentence together, let alone contribute value to the conversation. That when you do, it's like, 
Oh my God, that amazing <laughs> woman in policy. Have you met her? She's incredible. And it wasn't that I was so incredible, I was just competent and I deserved to be there. So again, letting it be the other person's problem as much as can you can. If it crosses a line, obviously you have to push back and do something about it. I want to explore the uh, mentor issue because yeah. you brought up that you had male mentors. Obviously, there weren't a whole lot of women, uh, if any at all, when you were coming up in, in the ranks. Uh, the same thing happened with me, and I'm sure the same thing happened with many women who come up in the fields where it's a lot of male-dominated positions. Um, but when you and I were talking about this earlier, you mentioned something that I think is important which is that you also looked for guidance and, and mentorship, if not even maybe calling it that, but from some of your subordinates. Yes. And so would love for you to talk about that a little bit because it's, it's counterintuitive, but at the same time, I think such a rich piece of advice for women who are coming up yeah. in what are still a lot of male-dominated fields. Yeah. So mentors don't only have to be your seniors. Um, and I had an experience, so when I came into the Pentagon the first time, I was in my 20s, I was female, I was civilian, and I was a Democrat, which is like, you know, how many strikes against you can you have? Um, I was put in charge of an office that had, you know, a couple of dozen people, including some very senior post-command military officers, including a Navy captain. And I remember, and I, so this was my first leadership job, really. And I remember this Navy captain coming and saying, you know, you have such good natural instincts, um, but if, if it's okay with you, you know, having just come out of command situations, having had 26 years in the Navy, if you would like me to be kind of a coach mentor, if you want to come, at, you know, ask me, I will be your XO, this is your executive officer, your person who kind of helps coach and guide you if you need it. If you don't want it, that's fine, but basically I want to make you successful. And it was an amazing offer, and I took it, you know, I was humble enough yeah. <laughs> and to realize, you know, I am going to be learning in this job. And he was an amazing uh, mentor, even yeah. though he was my subordinate. So one of the issues that I have dealt with, and I know a lot of other women have dealt with because they talk to me about this, is when they have come up in the ranks and they have had women bosses, if you will, they sometimes have experienced that those boss, those women bosses, those um, mentors or role models perhaps weren't the kind of role model that you would want for yourself. And what I mean by that is when you see women, or at least and maybe not so much so now, but before when you saw women in leadership positions and positions of um, e executive C-suites, if you will, a lot of times they felt like they had to act just like the men around mm -hmm, them. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that to be true. I think we bring our own um, leadership skills to the table, um, our own set of um, ways that we are able to lead that are different, sure, but I think bring so much risk, richness and, and, and a robust perspective and an important point of view. So. Talk to us a little bit about if you yeah. if you saw that there, or if you have ever encountered either other women, your colleagues, or whether that thought kind of crossed your mind that you had to kind of equal the way that a man right. either carried himself, acted, etc., or whether again yeah. you just didn't worry about it and you were who yeah, you were. Yeah, it's a very important point. I think one of the biggest challenges as a woman in a, a, a male-dominated environment is to find a leadership style that feels authentic. 
If you are not authentic as a leader, you will not be effective. Um, people point. will see right through it. Mm -hmm. And so finding a way to be yourself, um, including be your gender, uh, while also being effective in an environment where that may not be the norm, mm -hmm. I think is the biggest challenge. And so it is, you know, and yet I think there are advantages um, to having a diversity of perspectives. That's been shown in all of the business literature where you know, leadership teams that are more diverse have higher, better performance, um, whether it's in the private sector or in the public sector. Um, I found that, you know, um, back in college, I part of my uh, thesis work was uh, looking at um, the psychological development differences between men and women. And there's a wonderful uh, author named Carol Gilligan who talks about men being sort of brought up with more of a hierarchical, you know, where do I fit in the hierarchy frame? And women being brought up more in the where do I fit in the network? And what, in my experience that that translated into is I was very comfortable working horizontally and engaging stakeholders outside my, within my organization, outside the organization, and bringing them in, creating buy-in to get you know, things done. Um, so going outside the hierarchy and, and creating, you know, Support acceptance and, and, and momentum. And I thought that that was a very useful set of skills to have complementing the more hierarchical organization of a place like DOD. I think that's a, a, a great way to look at it. So I'm going to take you out now of your um, specific personal experiences and bring you into more into the realm, and you mentioned it a little bit just now, of the report that's being released today. Mm -hmm. um, the report that's being released today, there's a discussion about the 1979 Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, and the 1994 Inter-American Convention on the Prevention, Punishment, and Eradication of Violence Against Women. These are all big words, big titles, they look great, not a whole lot of people know about them, Mm -hmm. But from your perspective, have these made an impact? What kind of impact have they made? And what do we need to do to build on that to continue mm -hmm. to make sure that women's leadership roles are, are evolving? Yeah. No, I, I do think they have had um, some impact in raising awareness. In a lot of Latin American countries, you have um, a quota system being put in place for public sector mm -hmm. entities, which has been helpful in advancing women, but it's, it's not um, enough. I would add to that list the UN resolution on P uh, women in peace and security, which has required nations to come up with national implementation plans as well. So this is a work in progress, but you know we're a long way from where we wanna be. A quota is one thing, but the truth is you have to look at the whole health of the talent pipeline. Are we recruiting equally? Are, we, are women getting the same opportunity when they're in the pipeline? Are we giving them professional development? Um, are we giving them the same opportunities for mentorship and sponsorship? Um, are when we, they get to the high, more senior ranks for promotional promotion, what does the pipeline still look like? Is it still 50-50 or have, have the women fallen off? Why have they fallen off? Is it you know, lack of flexibility for having families? Is it there's no on-ramps back in once you wanna come back full time? You know, mm -hmm. All of these questions is that you have to take a sort of comprehensive, systematic approach. And again, not just make the argument that this is a moral issue, but make the argument, look, in democracies, it's really important that our leadership looks like our population. <laughs> Number two, from a shared talent management perspective, why would you keep half of your talent off the table? Yeah. 
I mean, it doesn't make any sense in terms of performance. And last, again, the business literature suggests when we do bring women into business, they have more profitable performance in those companies. When you bring women into peace and security processes, you get more sustainable, long-lasting agreements. All of the data is there. We just have to actually act on it. And I think what's ironic is, as you mentioned, it's no longer doing this because it's the right thing to do. It's because from an economic standpoint, from a bottom line standpoint, if you're a corporation, if you are a country, the only way to really get to your fullest potential is to make sure that women are fully involved. Yet, so many countries, so many corporations talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Mm -hmm. From your experience um, in the sort of global arena, um, when you've been in meetings with your Latin American counterparts, how have you seen this in this whole issue impact the way that they do business? Yeah, I think one of the most important things about this report is just putting the data out there. And what you'll see is that at the most senior levels, at the minister level, um, at the member of parliament level, we, there's huge progress in terms of women ministers of defense. You know, we haven't had one yet in this country, but you know, but when at my level, when you know I was uh, in government before, at the undersecretary level or below, you don't see that many women in defense and security. Um, and so it was almost always male counterparts. I was kind of treated as the honorary male by virtue of my position. Um, in these large meetings. And so um, at the very top, there's progress, but in the, again, that health of the pipeline, we're really not growing women from the junior ranks all the way up through. And it's a little different in a parliamentary system because you have the minister come in at the top as a politician, and then you have a civil service uh, cadre that's populating a ministry. And when you were in these meetings, sort of the same question, I'm gonna pose the same question I did for you when you were here, yeah. right? Did you feel any resistance, any weirdness towards you because yeah. you were a woman? I, I think that actually when you're, um, with a few exceptions, um, I'll mention one funny story as an exception, but generally I felt that I was treated according to my position. I was the Undersecretary for Policy from the United States of America. I usually, we usually had important work to deliver and get done and people focused on that. The one exception I'll say when I was younger and I was a deputy assistant secretary, back, again, back in the Clinton administration, we went on our first trip to China for a defense exchange to talk about um, strategy making and so forth. And I had done all of the substance for the meeting. My boss was there as the primary interlocutor. But at the end of the three days, um, when the Chinese general was thanking everybody, he said, and Ms. Flournoy, thank you so much for the beautifully wrapped gifts. <laughs> and, and at that moment, God bless him, this lieutenant commander who was my boss's uh, military assistant stepped up and said, actually, Ms. Florno was responsible for the substance of the meeting. I wrapped the gifts. And I just wanted to go and hug him. But, uh, so there's still pockets of, you know, around the world where they can't seem to get over the bias. But I, and that, was a, that was by far the exception to the rule in my experience. Um, so I'm going to pose one last question to you and then take some questions from the audience if we have any before we transition to the next panel. You, you mentioned the response um, from your boss. Was it your mm -hmm. boss who said that? Which is Phenomenal, I love it. What do you think is the role of men in understanding, accepting, and hopefully pushing forward 
the globalization of women's leadership roles? Uh, they're indispensable. Women, you know, cannot uh, achieve the goals we have by ourselves. There, women, uh, men are still um, in the vast majority of positions of power. They have a responsibility from a talent management per per perspective, from a organizational performance perspective, to pull women in to the ranks and develop them through the ranks, mentor, sponsor them to get to leadership ranks. They are absolutely essential. Um, and sometimes, you know, the best mentoring can be um, tough love. I mean, I, I remember having a mentor who told me, you know, your fear of public, I used to be terrified of doing exactly this. I would like <laughs> shake, feel nauseous, I'm gonna throw up, you know. Yeah. You've <laughs> and, done very well. <laughs> and, and, and he said to me, if you don't conquer this, this is gonna hold you back and I'm gonna help you go after this. And he just put me through this sort of boot camp wow. of getting comfortable with public speaking. And so sometimes it's tough love and it's, it's hard to hear, but those mentors, men and women, are absolutely essential to getting women to advance to their full potential. I couldn't agree more. So let's turn it over to some questions, which I already see a hand up in the air. Do we have a microphone? Yes, thank you. I have for you is, what does it look like if the United States were to implement quota laws on candidates for public office, starting either at the municipal level, moving on to state offices, and moving on to federal offices such as our House of Representatives and our Senate? What does yeah. it look like? No, I mean, I think if you look at the rest of Latin America, the impact of quotas is clear. You will get more women into office and into positions. I think in the United States, um, given our history and our culture, um, I think the imposition of quotas is extremely unlikely. Um, I just don't think it will happen politically. And I also think in our society, there is a double-edged sword. Um, that when you, if you're perceived to be where you are because of a quota, you risk being perceived that, oh, that's the only reason yeah. she's there. You know, it's assumed that you aren't competent. And then it's, you know, just raising the bar to have to prove yourself even more. So I think the quota approach has to be, you know, you have to really test it in the particular societal and cultural context. Um, I don't know that it's realistic to do here. That said, there's a lot of other things we can do. There are all kinds of groups springing up to train women to enter politics and help them be more successful in running for office. Um, there in the Obama administration, they took diversity, not only gender diversity, but racial and ethnic and other diversity very seriously. And when you were appointing a cadre, I had you know, 40 political appointees in my organization. You know, If you send an all white male slate to the White House, it was like, you know, try again. I mean, that, that's not what this country looks like. That can't possibly be the only competent people being considered. You know, try a little harder. And I think if you have serious leadership and accountability on these issues from the top, um, you don't necessarily need a legal quota. You can have the same effect. But it takes enlightened leadership. That's the challenge. Gene, that's a great question. And we're going to have a lot more of a discussion about that with our next panel. Um, so either one more question or, okay, let's just take one last question and then we'll transfer to the next panel. 
Good morning, I'm Zoe Swinson, the House of Representatives. I remember you talking about um, <clears throat> women often in leader leadership positions acting like men, and I guess I'm a little bit critical of the statement that women should act their gender um, in leadership positions in general, so I don't know, it, I'm, I'm a little bit critical of that statement. It seems like it may place some boundaries on women in the ways that they should be acting. Yeah. No, I guess um, what I meant to say, or I should have said, is be yourself. Right. Um, it's not acting your gender in that you have to look a certain way or dress a certain way or be a certain way. It's more be authentically yourself, whatever that is. And, you know, there were times in the Pentagon when I had, uh, you know, was facing someone who was expressing themselves extremely forcefully in a, trying to sort of in a, dominate the situation where I had to come right back at them. You know, I'm not a yeller screamer, I, but I can get very uh, clear <laughs> and very definite in a way that can be, you know, well understood by whoever's, you know, yelling and screaming on the other side of the conversation. But so I'm saying, you know, be, you have to figure through trial and error and through, you know, tr you know self-assessment, you have to find what's authentic to you. For some women, that's going to it, it's going to be a spectrum. It's, there's not a particular way to act that's okay. So I, thank you for giving me the opportunity to clarify that. Michelle, thank you so much. We could talk to you for hours, but thank you for sharing your insights with us. A big round thank of applause you. for Michelle. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You were terrific. Thank you so very much, Undersecretary Flournoy, uh, for that poignant advice and for sharing your fascinating story. And thank you, Maria, for moderating. And we're not finished with you yet. I know. So you have <laughs> to achieve gender equality at the highest level, saying there's a lot we can learn from Latin America's success at electing women presidents. Hmm. Yes, <laughs> there is. Uh, the panel will now dive into that and the private sector um, on issues uh, within Latin America. So please now welcome Congresswoman Alma Arteluz Alonso, Angelica Fuentes, Jennifer Klein, and Laura, our author of this wonderful report, Laura Arbenos Polman. And of course, our moderator, Maria Cardona. Thank you, ladies, for joining us. Uh, again, I look forward to this discussion as well. You all have incredibly different uh, and varied perspectives uh, on this issue, and so we really look forward to hearing um, everything that you have to say. So, Laura, let me begin with you. Um, as a former minister for women's issues of Chile and as a current director of the state-owned Codelco, yes. you've had a long career in the public sector and you've been involved in countless initiatives to advance women's roles mm -hmm. in society. It would seem self-explanatory to the people on this panel why it is important to bring more women into leadership roles. And it seems self-explanatory to everybody that you talk to about this. But could you tell us what are some of the benefits to society? Because I don't think we can talk about this often enough and it continues to, um, it continues to need underscoring. And, as a communications professional, you know, messaging, 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 you just got to continue to repeat it until people get it. People don't get it yet. So, Laura, tell us in your own words, 
what is it that we need to be doing and why? Well, good morning to everyone. I'm going to speak in my native language. Well, the truth is, I have the feeling that the benefits uh, have been there for a long time and are clear, and it's also evident from the numbers that women in power, for example, lead to better returns on investment in the private sector, greater diversity, and women lead to better performance in government and business. And we need, however, to continue to justify why 50% of society should be also a, at a, the highest levels. But it, it is true that sometimes I wonder if this is really efficient. In, I remember that I was talking to someone and they were talking about their personal experiences. I think that all of us here could talk about thousands of experiences that have happened to us in our daily life. And I have the feeling that in my personal case, I'm the first woman who has been in the uh, uh, board of directors of Cadelco, which is one of the most important copper companies in the, the world. And I don't think the path is so easy if we don't use arguments that go beyond the data. I think that just looking at the data on productivity in businesses, that's not enough. You can't change people's mentality with that. For example, the uh, secretary who was up here before, she was talking about her experiences. And I remember that in my company we had a U.S. expert in uh, underground mines. And we were all at a meeting. Everyone went to greet her. I, I stayed seated because I'm the director of the company. And there were uh, greetings in English. And so I, I got the pen drive when the she came or he came by. He wanted me to uh, put the pen drive in the computer, thought I was a secretary. And then someone said, oh, she's the director of the company. And so you have two options. But the response of my colleagues, uh, well, and the chair of the board of directors, who's a very important economist in Chile, said, Laura, maybe you look like a secretary. Well, given the situation, and so this, of course, I, I think that the report is important. Of course, we want to have an exchange of experiences, look at data, and of course, this meeting is about that. That's what our objective is. But I also have the feeling that we need a key that's better refined, that will fit better into the keyhole. I think there are many keys here, but th there's some missing, uh, and that's why women aren't at the top, even though we should be there because of our education. Right, and that the messaging has yeah. got to be more uh -huh. persuadable, but I also deeply believe, and I think that everybody here will agree with me, that 
we're not going to get to that point until the, the people who are in positions of making those decisions uh -huh. are either women themselves or men who really truly understand the message yes. and that have that key that uh -huh. you're talking about, right? Angelica, let me go to you. You have been a huge driver in the entrepreneurship business sector, and you've done amazing work to move this issue forward in terms of, of women's leadership. So tell us a little bit about um, what you think this report can do, but in addition to that, what do you think is this missing key that Laura talked about? And, and I love that word because I think that's exactly right. I think there's a lot more women coming onto the labor force in Latin America, which is very important. But I also believe that unless the top tier, especially the heads of companies, really believe that women do have a lot of talent, because there is a lot of talent out there, you know, there's not going to be enough positions to make the decisions mm -hmm. to where companies really improve, you know, for years that a more diverse company has better corporate results. So, but unless in Latin America, the, the top, you know, executive board, the, the, the CEO believes in it, nothing's really going to change. I believe that cultural uh, biases, preconceived ideas that women have about women and men have about women really stops them from, you know, mm -hmm. moving along. I think women have to believe in themselves, have mm -hmm. to really go out there and try to do what they know they're capable of. But I also believe that, you know, th there's great laws that are written. There's incredible principles that companies have out there, you know, posted everywhere. But if the head of government and or the head of the company doesn't truly believe in it, it will not trickle down. It will not come to happen. It will mm -hmm. just be posted out there on board. So I think yeah. you know, that one of the keys is that, you know, top management really has to believe. And in Latin America, the 100 largest companies only have 3% of women on executive boards. Mm -hmm. in, Mexico, in Mexico, for example, only 6 and or around 7% of boards have women in them. And on the executive positions, you know, it's, it's less than that. It's mm -hmm. like maybe, you know, 4 or 5%. So you know, we really need to also work, you know, within ourselves and our cultures. I've often told women, you have had the power to perpetuate machismo, mm. which is one of the biggest ills that we face. You have the exact same power to eradicate it when you truly believe you have had the power to do one. So I think a lot of it also has to do with what women, you know, believe of themselves. Yeah. And, you know, the last thing that I would like to comment is that we also need to understand that for centuries, companies were created by men for men. Yeah. And we need to trans, you know, transition into companies being created by men and women for men and women. Yeah. You know, it's very hard when you don't have flex time, home yes. office, you know, uh, infrastructure for breastfeeding, mm -hmm. uh, for daycare. You know, all of those things are extremely important for women to really thrive. You know, opening up, you know, the possibility of women coming back into the workforce after, you know, having children. That's that's key. We cannot lose half of the talent because we're not willing to change yeah. within the corporations what we don't need laws like in public uh, uh, in public places in the public sector to to do so yeah you've hit so many nails on the head Angelica that um, but there's one in particular 
that I think uh, I'd like to explore because <laughs> it recently happened to us here, not to be specific about anything. But you're, you, you said that we also have to work on women's attitudes towards women because I think that is something that we don't talk about enough, um, especially here in the United States, but as well as in, in Latin America. Um, so I would love to, turning to the Congresswoman, to see um, clearly you have been an example of how to make it in, in an arena that is very difficult, but you are also in a place where I believe has been uh, able to thrive because the, the public sector has put in laws and regulations that have made sure that women are at least um, able to, you know, to not not really use a word that I, I think is is literal, but a level playing field, if you will, in the public sector. Tell us a little bit about your experience coming up as as a congresswoman, as an elected official. What um, what barriers did you face? And even with these laws and regulations. What barriers do women still face, and how can we challenge those? Thank you very much uh, for the invitation. I also want to speak in Spanish. I think the educational factor is very important. In Latin America, more and more girls go to school, which is something that didn't happen before because they try to help their parents uh, bring income into the house. We see a great deal of progress in the educational sector. In Mexico, we see women that are better and better prepared academically. And this means that they have been able to access better jobs, both in the private and public sector. And let's remember that Mexico is the second largest economy in Latin America. And when we look at gender equality, what has Mexico done? Mexico had a, an educational reform, and this reform uh, was very difficult uh, to push through because many unions were against it, and so we weren't able to do anything for years. And so this reform, what it's uh, allowing is that uh, children are better prepared with very advanced tools and so that they can have a better future in Mexico. Also, women congressmen, what have we achieved? Well, a labor reform, be able to have non-discrimination laws and also have incentives for women. And so for all those businesses that employ more women, there are tax incentives. Now, these are proposals that have been made in Congress. When Somebody who's been working on these issues for over a decade um, in you know, past administrations as well as in, now in the private sector, what do you see are the best tools that Latin America has been able to use? And Compare those to the tools that we have available here, because I think Jean was the person who brought this up in the question, and it's certainly something that came up in my mind when I was reading this phenomenal report, which is the issue of quotas, mm -hmm. right? Why does it work in Latin America? Why do you or don't you think it would work here? And then the, the other layer that I want to ask you is, um, has the issue of bringing suit on discrimination, has that been something that has been active in Latin America, and is that an incentive or a disincentive, or is it mostly the laws and regulations and quotas that have been put in place? Um, thank you. Thanks for the great question, and, and thanks to the Atlantic Council for, for having all of us. Um, 
I think, you know, if you look at the difference in Latin America between the public sector and the private sector, it starts to answer a lot of questions, mm -hmm. um, particularly about quotas. I mean, I think what we've learned is quotas have worked in yeah. Latin America. Um, we see that, you know, there's about 15 countries, 14, 15 countries that have quotas in place. And um, in Latin America, we see women in positions of power, you know, 10 heads of state. Yeah. And as you noted earlier, um, I've noticed we don't have one uh, yet here. Um, but also in parliament, you know, it's ranging, but an average of about 22%, um, but, but as high as 30 in some of the countries. Yeah. Um, and even women in ministries, a fifth of yeah. women in ministries. Now, uh, to um, Michelle's point earlier, not as much in, um, in uh, ministries like defense right. um, or the finance ministries, but that is also changing. Right. Um, so part of it is quotas, part of it is other laws, um, sort of the, the legal framework um, that is in place, which I think is, is super important. Um, but also a culture of, um, of leadership, right? Dating back to Eva Perón. Right? It's not an accident that you know, when she came to power, women in Latin America really began to understand their power. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, it coincided with the right to vote in many, um, many countries, and I think that's significant. Um, and I, you know, we started to talk about this earlier, there's a little bit of a cycle, right? Because if you see women in positions of power, you believe that you can also um, reach positions of power. Um, you know, there's a, um, today in Latin America, public opinion polling is, is quite clear. Even there's a, a poll dating back to, um, to 2000, actually I think it's in the report, the Gallup, I think it's in the report, the Gallup poll that shows that 90% of Latin Americans would be willing to vote for a female leader and 69%, even in 2000, believed that they would see one in mm -hmm. the next uh, decade. Um, and way less so here. Um, yeah. Even in 2005, according to a CBS News uh, poll, New York Times poll, um, we said only 55% of Americans could see a female leader back in 2005. Um, you know, another point that you sort of started to, to get mm -hmm. to with Michelle, um, but I think is really important, is the role of, of Latin American women leaders in um, post-conflict. A lot of the yeah. leaders um, emerged after being part of um, po a conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. um, and so men were able to see them um, as organizers, as militants, as, mm -hmm. as leaders in a different way. And I think that is a, you know, visible leaders, and I think that's actually been a, a factor. You know, if you look at the private yeah. sector, there's obviously no quotas. Um, there's only a few countries in the world that have quotas, and in fact, they have um, greater numbers of, um, of women in, on boards or in mm -hmm. positions of power. That has not happened in Latin America. Um, but mm -hmm. I also think that the answer quotas is, is a little bit too simple. And I think, you know, people have touched on right. the, the number why, of, why yeah, there's, there's a number of, of other things, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the culture, mm -hmm. um, whether it's, you know, there's, there's implicit biases, there's explicit biases, there's internalized biases that, that you started to, to talk about. And there's also the building of the pipeline. Yeah. And of course, you know, one of the things that I've spent a very long time working on in my own career is the workplace policies, right? So if you have educated women, mm -hmm. that's really important. And again, um, to your point, Latin America has really made progress way more than other regions of the world in educating women. Yeah. You know, higher numbers of women are graduating um, with college level degrees in Latin America than in most places, many places um, around the world. But making that transition to a workplace where yeah. um, women are paid equally. There is no country in the world where women are paid equally. 
Um, can you just say that again? Can we all just cringe? <laughs> I mean, to me too. There, are no, there is no country in the world where women are paid equally, and every country in the world, women do more of the unpaid work. Yes. So whether that's oh. childcare, caring for elderly relatives, or, um, or, or housework, yeah. um, every country in the world, women bear um, a disproportionate burden. And it is very varied, you know, from an hour to six hours, yeah. basically, but that's a significant piece of what is holding women back when they are trying to enter leadership roles. Yeah, I agree. I think the double burden mm -hmm. has been something that has stopped a lot of women in Latin America to moving on forward into, you know, that pipeline to create more women, you know, participating in mm -hmm. C-suite positions. And I'd like to tap, you know, into the, the, the quotas thing. I think it was great for at least like in Mexico to do to have more women participating, you know, on on um, in Congress and mm -hmm. in the Senate. But I also think that that's not enough. I think that they really need to give them the programs, but follow through on them, yeah. educate them, elevate them, mentor them, you know, to really foster them in, to invest understand in and them. invest invest in them, because it'll happen just like it's happened in the private sector. If you have women in the public sector, you know, half and half, but they're not really participating in the commissions, you know, being presidents or secretaries on them, or the committees, then they're not really in the decision-making end of it. So it's the same thing in, you know, the private sector. There's a lot more women participating, a lot, you know, more coming onto the labor force, but not making any difference. You know, and on the boards, one of the things, one of the studies that I, you know, really thought was very interesting that has actually made the companies have better corporate results is because we have different visions. Two heads think better than one, mm -hmm. but two different visions resolve complex problems with a different light for better. You know, men usually make decisions on a board level, right. thinking about shareholders. Women, on the other hand, make decisions thinking about the stakeholders. So you need both visions to, you know, make better uh, decisions. So I think, you know, that we really need to consider all of those things. The totality you know, of it. Right, and, and, and allowing women mm -hmm. to be part of the decision making. They're making the decision for half yeah. of the world. Yeah. Laura, do you want to jump in on that? See, understand that we have to cooperate with men. Things are not going to move along faster. We need to bring him in. Yeah. I have talked so much to very young girls, especially like high school in the United States, and it shocks me to see them thinking they're better than men, thinking they're going to cover up a lot more than, than any man, that they're going to get him out of the way because you know they're not as worthy as, worthy as they are. I would hate to see that my 30 plus years of working on gender, you know, at the end of my days, looking at women doing to men the exact same thing yeah. that men had done to women. I hope we understand that we are not better than men, that we don't walk ahead of them, we don't walk behind them, that we need to understand that we walk shoulder to shoulder and cooperate with one another to get things done. But, you know, we just need to really get all those studies, you know, in place, promote them, talk about them, include men in panels like this to see what they think. <laughs> I think it's very important, you know, the men's thoughts are very important, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of men who really, you know, you see, you know, many men sitting here. The enlightened who men really of the believe audience. in this. Yes. <laughs> and they need to be able to talk about it. Jen, you want to? I, I just jump in. I completely agree that leadership matters, probably the most important thing, and the leadership of men in particular. I would also add the grassroots. 
you know, I think one of the things we've seen right here in this country over the last couple of months, but really for a lot longer than that, is a growing grassroots movement. So we need to arm people with the information. One of the things that I worked on was a project for two years at the Clinton Foundation called No Ceilings, which mm -hmm. was designed to take data about progress women and girls have made over the 20-year period between the Beijing Platform for Action and 2015 at the time. Um, and make it really accessible. And you know, one of the things we, we actually did was we had a day where um, women got a bunch of companies together, um, media companies, but also private companies, to take women out of publications and billboards, literally these huge billboards in Times Square, um, to see that we're not there yet was our, <laughs> was our um, sort of convention. But really get the data out there. Also then puts corporations and, you know, we know that majority of men still run corporations and we know how competitive they are, right? Put them in these sort of competitive, in a competitive arena, not just to get the most, um, you know, sales of approval, seals of approval from the government, but also if we really are graduating more women at the top of their classes, same thing is happening in the United States. There are, those companies are also going to attract more of that talent. And at the end of the day, that is also going to be something that these CEOs are going to mm -hmm. want to attract that talent and, and you know, measure their success by the kind of talent they're able to attract. I want to pose a question to all four of you that I think certainly has been top of mind to me as a Latina. I'm originally from Colombia. Uh, was brought up here in the United States. I have seen this report. I have seen the, the, the 10 heads of state that Latin America has produced. I have seen that we are still falling short in the United States of America. Hopefully that will change soon. But there's this sort of dichotomy between how people see the Latin American culture as very sexist, right, focused on machismo, and yet they have been able to produce 10 heads of state that are women. So why do you think that is? Where is the, 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 the missing llave, if you will, the missing key in terms of the reality that is, exists in Latin America, the reality that exists in the United States, and what needs to be done in both countries to continue to move this forward? Angelica. You know, one of the things that, that um, I guess it's kind of strange is that even though Latin America is a very machista ground, it has been created basically by women. It should not be women the only ones who are educating. It should be men and women educating their children. But women are the ones that basically educate their children. They educate them with differences, different opportunities. You know, women are not, you know, taught to take risks. Yeah. Women are not supposed to be ambitious because in Latin America, if you're an ambitious woman, you're not really a good girl, good woman. So, you know, they, they educate him with, with biases. Uh, girls are educated either by example or are told to tend to men, whether it be the brother, the father, the uncle, whatever. And boys grow up thinking that they're little kings, you know, that are there to be served by women. But then on the other hand, it's a very matriarchal society. Yeah, it is. Women, at the end of the day, when they're older, especially when they become grandmothers, mm -hmm are the leaders, yeah. mainly not when they're moms, but when they are grandmothers, they are the leaders of you know, the, the, the families. Mm -hmm. And they're really looked up at. Mm -hmm. 
and, and that's kind of different. And I don't know if- And are powerful. If, and are very powerful. Yeah. And I don't know if psychologically, because I can't you know, tap on any other thing, maybe somebody else has more information, they look at you know, a head of state, which is heading, you know, most of our governments have been very, um, how do you say, paternal governments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they look at that, and it's okay for them to have a woman heading it. I, you know, I, I don't really have, maybe, maybe you have studied that more. That's just how I see it. Yes, Jen. I, I guess you won't be surprised that the, the one of the law professors in the group is going to return to the law um, because I agree with everything you said. I, I also think that there's sort of an underpinning of laws. You know, if you look, there's a recent study of the Interparliamentary Union which measures political participation. And one of the things that it shows is that women have had a lot better success in parliamentary systems, just sort of the way that elections happen. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, here, with all of the, the cultural attitudes underlying it, it's a legal system that is you know, one candidate against another candidate, which requires um, that candidate to be liked. Yeah. Um, it requires that candidate to be able to raise money. Mm -hmm. It requires that candidate to be covered in the media fairly. All things which are questionable, I think, in right. this country. Um, whereas in other systems that have a sort of more um, interesting, mm -hmm. I, literally the par the parliamentary system, that's not how elections happen in quite the same way. So I think there's that. There's so it's structural. I think mm -hmm. there's a real structural piece, um, and I also think that there's sort of a, a, a legal underpinning um, of other law uh, laws that have been passed as a result. You know, again, mm -hmm. it's cyclical, right? So. You have Cuba as a perfect example, which is an incredibly gender equal place on paper. There's a, you know, a lot of machismo there as well. Yeah. But not only do you have a government which was legislated to be equal, mm -hmm. but you also have a government that has legislated equality, right? So there's yeah. a lot of uh, rights on health and on education that are sort of built in, in Cuba in a way that even in other places in Latin America, it hasn't been. So I think to, to return to the structure as well. And what they were talking about a little while about, about quotas, how, has, how have quotas worked in Latin America? This has allowed for women to be in government. Speaking about Mexico, since we did the electoral reform by Enrique Peña Nieto, we were able then to get 213 Congresswomen of 500, so and 40 some in senators out of a bit under 200. So there are three secretaries of state of different uh, agencies. There is culture, agriculture, and public functions. So if we analyze the state governments, we have one governor in Sonora. So I think that these type of electoral reforms have allowed for women to get into government and for them to be advanced. Of course, there's machismo in Mexico, but these electoral reforms have helped. Yes, and I think that that also promotes change to, to change that machista mentality. I agree. I am a law professor, and I can assure you that the biggest discrimination is at a structural level. As you know, in culture, publicity, religion, 
there is a built-in prejudice, and I think laws, therefore, are important. We still have a law in Chile that says that a married woman in a conjugal society, she says, I can't interpret this, the goods, the the community property and the women's are managed or administered by the man. There's an article that stipulates parentary that this is done this way. So there are rules that are discriminated. Abortion is not legal in any way in Chile. So laws and rules are a tool for progress. And I am completely convinced that quotas help. But there is evident proof. I was with uh, Chancellor Merkel a while ago, and her party did not want quotas. But two years later, they approved 30% for companies, mandatory 30% women in a similar fashion as the Nordic countries, because if you did not have 30% of women, then the company could not exist. It had to be dissolved. And that was an aggressive measure, but they're effective. They're efficient measures which will instantly change cultural perceptions and more race. So I do believe that laws are important. And in this search for all those keys, we have to use every tool available to create change. We're going to go to Q&A. I could ask a million more questions from this amazing panel, so I'm sure the, the audience has great questions as well. So why don't we start with you, ma'am? And this has great questions as well, so why don't we start with you, ma'am? And then we'll go over to the side of the room. Hi, Maria Ladaba from the Red Shoe Movement. First, thank you everybody for being here and Adrian for allowing this incredible conversation. I have a question for you. There are there's science and research behind everything that you were saying, that how can we achieve more diversity and equality at the top? So my question is, what is it going to take to start using metrics and science the same way we use it in the core business, in sales and marketing, when you can measure everything and then we can have coca diet for women and coca zero for men, and it's the same formula, but we know that they respond differently? <laughs> when, what is it going to take for businesses and governments to start using the research that exists to make these changes happen fast and not in 100 years? Thank you. Angelica, you, you know, I, I think... You know, I mean, I said in the beginning, I really believe that one of the key factors is that the head of the different corporations has to really believe in this mm -hmm. to make sure that everything that is set in place has to be implemented going all the way down. But then again, I think, you know, that the corporate, you know, the business sector cannot do it alone. We got to, you know, the public sector, the, the business sector, so, you know, the society, uh, you know, inst public institutions, they all need to work together, you know, on, on the same, you know, space to make this happen. We need to cooperate with one another. And, and um, you know, we, they were talking in your previous um, uh, interview, you know, she said something that was very important, and I agree with it. Mm -hmm. Unless we understand that we have to cooperate with men, things are not going to move along faster. We need 
to bring him in. Yeah. I have talked so much to very young girls, especially like high school in the United States, mm -hmm. and it shocks me to see them thinking they're better than men. They think they're going to cover up a lot more than, than any man, that they're going to get him out of the way because you know they're not as worthy as, worthy as they are. I would hate to see that my 30 plus years of working on gender, you know, at the end of my days, looking at women doing to men the exact same thing yeah. that men had done to women. I hope we understand that we are not better than men, that we don't walk ahead of them, we don't walk behind them, that we need to understand that we walk shoulder to shoulder and cooperate with one another to get things done. But, you know, we just need to really get all those studies, you know, in place, promote them, talk about them, include men in panels like this to see what they think. I think it's very important, you know, the men's thoughts are very important. You know, and I'm sure there's a lot of men who really, you know, you see, you know, many men sitting here. The enlightened who men really of the believe audience. in this. Yes. And they need to be able to talk about it. Jen, you want to? I, I just jump in. I completely agree that leadership matters, probably the most important thing, and the leadership of men in particular. I would also add the grassroots. You know, I think one of the things we've seen right here in this country over the last couple of months, but really for a lot longer than that, is a growing grassroots movement. So we need to arm people with the information. One of the things that I worked on was a project for two years at the Clinton Foundation called No Ceilings, which mm -hmm. was designed to take data about progress women and girls have made over the 20-year period between the Beijing Platform mm -hmm. for Action and 2015 at the time. Um, and make it really accessible. And you know, one of the things we, we actually did was we had a day where um, women got a bunch of companies together, um, media companies, but also private companies, to take women out of publications and billboards, literally these huge billboards in Times Square, um, to see that we're not there yet was our, <laughs> was our um, sort of convention. But really get the data out there, right? So it's great that we all are sharing it, but also sharing it with the people who are on the ground doing work, um, trying to change people's minds yeah. and, and attitudes. Pushing this every single day. Yeah, in really simple, bite-sized ways. Yeah. yeah. Let's go to this side of the room for a question. Back there. The gentleman. <laughs> Hi, thanks for the, for the talk, it was really great. Jesse Kornbluth from the Brookings Institution. Um, we're talking a lot um, uh, in this forum about kind of trickle down um, gender equality, how it needs to come from the top, but how do we kind of from the ground up um, address cultural issues that you know from a very young age, um, little men and women, little boys and girls, um, need to be able to see themselves as equals with each other. So how do we address these cultural factors um, and kind of build that into our society um, from the ground up from a cultural perspective and not just from a business leadership perspective from the top down. Thanks. Congresswoman, do you want to take this question? Okay. Laura. I think that the key was given to us in Beijing when there was transversalization it's very difficult to pronounce a word, but it's a clear in its purpose. It's a clear word in its purpose, especially because there is public and private space with a gender focus. So I come from a country where this has been done aggressively. There is a ministry of women, and that's relevant because I want to let you know that at least in my experience, un 
in Latin America, or in America in general, those countries who have which have had institutions for women have had a greater impact than those countries where those institutions are not as important. In Chile, the person in charge of gender is a woman, of course, and has a budget and has a legal mandate for the different agencies. So. For example, in education, many, many years ago, I worked on these texts for, so they would not be sexist. So we would change the language so that the textbooks would not be sexist. Because in Spanish, you know, we have in speech female and male genders. So we had to educate teachers because they would make the girls read poetry and literature and make the boys do math. So I'm saying this because of the previous question and the researchers, let's say in my case we we're doing research in law, but there is discrimination in the papers you get to do your research. So the amount of publications that we're reading already have this in them. So how do you begin with girls in a new education that is has this gender awareness and how teachers teach? So when you use this tool of transversalization, incorporating gender in all levels of daily life, in every aspect of daily life, at work, in all the ministries or government agencies, then you can make everything click together so that the government is providing an answer and creating this cultural change to advance, to make progress. This amazing panel is if you were to see your dream story coming out of this panel, from this report, and from the discussion we have had, what would you like your quote to be in that story? What do you want the audience to walk away from with, with what, of what you, what you participated in, in in their minds? So whoever wants to go first, I don't want to give it all to Laura. Angelica, you're, I see your wheels turning. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I would like to see that, you know, that at least this audience and, and, and whoever, you know, would read the report mm -hmm. can understand that we can make a difference, you know, one person at a time, but we have to believe that women should not just share, you know, the sky and the earth, but men also have to be willing to share the power to make and inherit a better world for all the generations to come, which are filled with, with both genders, you know? We, we just have to. And just, just one last yeah. comment that, that I think it's very important. I think, you know, uh, with, with this uh, young lady that talked about, you know, be your gender, I think we should be our gender. Mm. I think we should understand that we are women first and foremost. And that we need to understand, because I grew up asking myself every single day, well, not asking, telling myself every single day, 
that my gender did not decide anything for me because it did not define me. Mm -hmm. So I did not have to act or be a man in order for me, you know, to come forward and do what I wanted to do. So I, you know, I just, especially women, hopefully, will understand Thank that. Thank you. Jen? And I guess I always return to the evidence. You know, I, I really think that what we know, it's, it's, it's incontroversial. What we know is that there are really high costs to inaction and there are really clear benefits to women's leadership uh, and full participation. And one thing we didn't talk about but is really also important is women who are not only at the leadership. You know, there's, there's a, a female face yeah. to, to poverty and yes, we need yeah. to hit that head on as well. We need to bring all women along and there's uneven progress. But when you actually look at the evidence, it's, uh, to quote my old boss, it's not only the right thing to do, it's the smart thing yeah. to do. That's terrific. I think that these fora are an excellent platform and that we can take many ideas and subjects that are interesting to each one of us. As a congresswoman, I would like to strengthen and begin new initiatives to favor women leaders and from my point of view, find ways to help and empower women for my position. I think that this report allows, allows us humbly and in a beginning fashion what we are what we're losing in social development. I keep calling you teacher, professor. We are professors, one, one for each other, to each other, rather. What the world is missing when we don't have women in better conditions, not just women leaders, as my colleague was saying, but women that overcome poverty and therefore their family will not be poor when there's more democracy, more stability. The question then is, sometimes I'm politically incorrect, but how much is the United States missing or losing by not having had a woman president? of mine when uh, my daughter was very young, four years old, and I have a, a, my son was six at the time, we were watching The Little Drummer Boy. It was over Christmas, and we were watching it in Spanish because I brought them up in Spanish. Spanish is their first language. When all of the sh little shepherd boys were coming to see El Niño Jesús, the baby Jesus, I was like, ay, mira, que lindos, los pastorcitos. How beautiful the shepherds are coming to see baby Jesus. Mama? Um, where are the little shepherd girls? Why don't they go see Jesus? <laughs> Let's give our amazing panelists another round of big applause. Thank you. Unfortunately, we could not get the video of uh, the president, uh, Bachelet, online, but it will be online on the website later on. So please do go online, visit it, and check it out. So thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you for your time. Muchas gracias. Thank you for listening to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at AtlanticCouncil.org and follow us on Twitter at Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council working together to secure the future.